our sin but the blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. We praise you for full atonement. We praise you that Jesus, you not only bore our sin, you took the punishment of God. You literally took hell for us. You defeated sin, you defeated Satan, you defeated the flesh, and we praise you, and we worship you, and we give our lives to you. And all God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. All right. Before we dismiss our children and before we take the offering, when I ask that everybody, anybody involved in education, you work in a school, homeschool, private school, public school, university, if you have any connection at all in your job with a school, I want you to stand. I want to pray for you that are involved in the educational uh, system as school is back or it's about to start back. Just want to pray blessing over you and anointing over you. I want to thank you for what you do um, to serve so many people. So let's join our hearts. Lord, uh, these are your people, and they are your light and your representatives at their various jobs and at their places, and they're in such strategic places, whatever area of education. Lord, I pray that you would use them this year, that you would give them favor, that you would guide them and direct them and fill them with your spirit. I pray that they will uh, just have your anointing over them for great influence for the kingdom. I pray that you'll strengthen them the days that they are weary, the days when it's hard, uh, that you will give a special grace in those days. And Lord, now we bring this offering before you. We give with joy, sowing into the kingdom, trusting you to meet our needs. And we pray an anointing over your holy word now and over our children. And Father, that you would just move in power now as we stand under the authority of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Ushers, take up the offering, please. If you did fill out one of those communication cards, you can put that in the offering basket. And children ages three years to fifth grade that wish to go to the children's church time, you are dismissed. Turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 12. If you're new to Living Hope, uh, we preach through books of the Bible. We're in the Gospel of John, and somebody this week said, Pastor David, how in the world are you going to do chapter 12? You could spend four months in that one chapter alone. Yes, I could. And that's true for so many of the chapters in God's Word. But I'm going to take this chapter, and we're going to uh, go at it, and the, the entire chapter. You can go back a little to chapter 11. And, uh, but let me tell you, as we get to chapter 14... We're going to slow the train down significantly. Uh, I had a friend of mine this week. He said he believes John chapter 14 is one of the most important chapters in all of the Word of God. Uh, 14, 15, 16, 17, really meaty chapters, so we will slow down. But today we're going to go fast, so get ready. You might want to take out your notes. You can bring them up on your app as well. But John chapter 12, as I was going through this chapter, there were three things that continually emerged to me the gospel revealed references to the death of jesus over and over and you'll see this number of times that the death of jesus the sacrifice of jesus is talked about matter of fact chapter 12 is many call the beginning of the end when it comes to the gospel of john and even the life of jesus chapter 12 through 21 covers just a little over one week in the life of jesus 
We see this references to his death, his sacrifice, the gospel. We're going to see today what the true gospel is. If you come away today with any confusion about what the true gospel is, then you didn't listen. Number two, we're going to see how the true gospel is rejected. How some rejected the gospel. Even those who saw Lazarus raised from the dead. I was talking to Andy Hines earlier, and he said one thing that stood out to him in chapter 12 was how they tried, they, they thought they would kill Lazarus. Like, like killing him again is going to mean Jesus couldn't raise him again? I mean, really? Like, oh, all my resurrection power is gone. I couldn't do that again. How foolish. But yet so many reject Jesus, even though they saw the miracles. They saw Lazarus rise from the dead. So we'll see the gospel rejected. And then we'll see the gospel received. What should be our response? to this incredibly good news of Jesus Christ dying and rising for our sins. So let's look, first of all, at the true gospel revealed. Where do we see the gospel in this chapter? Well, if you go back to chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus, and then we see quite a unique prophecy in chapter 11, verse 48. The religious leaders respond to the resurrection of Lazarus by saying, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Caiaphas didn't even really know what he was saying, and yet through the Holy Spirit, he's prophesying that Jesus Christ would die for the nation, and we know that he died not only for that nation, but for you and me as well. Amen? And so we see this prophecy about The death of Jesus. Jesus, born to die, even at his birth, when they brought the three gifts, the magi. What was one of them? Frankincense and myrrh and gold. Myrrh was a spice used for what? Burial. Even there, the finger of God was pointing to the cross. Born to die, here's a prophecy. Number two, Passover. Chapter 11, verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. The beginning of the end. Jesus is going to be crucified during what festival of the Jewish calendar? Passover. The sovereignty of God that Jesus would die during Passover. What was Passover? Exodus chapter 12. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. God says, I'm going to deliver my people. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring an angel to bring death to the firstborn of all the Egyptians. But my people can be spared that angel of death By one means and one means only, you take a lamb, a perfect lamb, and you kill it, and you take the blood of that lamb, and you put it over your doorpost. 
And the angel of death and judgment comes and he sees the blood over the doorpost. He will pass over that house. Jesus is called the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. His blood shed for our sins to deliver us from slavery, to deliver us from captivity. And that, therefore, when God sees the blood of Jesus over your heart and mine, he will pass over, the angel of death will pass over. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I love this passage, it says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Let us join the feast. Have you applied that blood to your sin? Have you applied that blood to your heart? If you have, death and judgment passes over you. Third area in which this death of Jesus is referred to in these chapters is number three is literally death. Reference to his death in chapter 12, verses 1 to 7, Mary anoints Jesus with this expensive perfume, almost worth a year's wages. And it says in verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my what? Burial. She's anointing Jesus in preparation for his death and his burial. Another reference to the gospel in this chapter. Number four is the first Palm Sunday, verses 12 through 18. Jesus comes into town on a donkey, and the people cry what? Hosanna! What does Hosanna mean? God, Lord, save us now! Now many, of course, were thinking he would save them from the evil Roman Empire. They were thinking a king who would be an earthly king. We know he's a heavenly king. He didn't come to necessarily deliver them from the Roman Empire. He came to deliver us from sin. When they were yelling, Hosanna, it's a reference to his salvation, which would be accomplished through his death and resurrection on the cross. Number five, verse 23, this use of the word hour. Now if you remember... We've seen this word throughout this gospel many times when Jesus would say, my hour has not yet come. Remember those? What's he referring to? Hour of what? Hour of death, verse 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come. You could literally put a little star there in your Bible and says, here's the beginning of the end. Here's the shift in John where now he's saying the hour has come the Son of Man to be glorified. We'll talk about the meaning of that as well. Truly I say to you, so here's what it's going to mean that the hour has come. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You took a little grain of wheat. If you didn't, you can come out and get one after the service. Look at this little grain of wheat. What is the hour he's referring to? He's referring to the hour of his death. The hour of the flogging. The hour of the crucifixion. The hour of his atoning sacrifice for our sins. I could take this grain of wheat and I could leave it on this table or on this pulpit for years and years and years and nothing would change. But you take that grain of wheat and you put it in the earth and you allow it to die. That's when it produces a plant. 
and a harvest. Jesus is using this to refer to how he must die. He must shed his blood. He must be sacrificed in order for the growth and the plant of salvation to come. You and me, if you're in Christ, are part of the fruit that comes from that grain of wheat falling into the earth and dying. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And the next word that we see is this word glory or glorify. In verse 27 and 28, he already refers to it here when he says, it's the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. Reminds you of the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't it? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. There it is again. Father, glorify your name. What is this reference? Why would the word glorify be used to refer to the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood atonement of Jesus? Why would that be used? Well, I've given you this definition before, but if you use this definition, anytime you come to the word glory or glorify, it will bring new light to that, to that passage. Here's a great definition of glory or glorify. It's to fully reveal the character and the likeness of God. The word was used, the word picture was of a light shining on an object. So you, you get everything around it dark, you shine the light on that object so it's glorified. It's seen for what it truly is, like a diamond. And so whenever the word glory or glorify is used, it's to fully reveal the character and likeness of God. How awesome that that word would be used for Jesus' hour of death. Why? Because when Jesus died on the cross, God's character is most fully revealed. His holiness to bring judgment on sin. His love to bear the penalty that we deserve. His compassion, his grace, his faithfulness. You take any attribute of God, it is best seen at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ in the empty tomb. Again, a reference to the gospel here. And then finally, it's number seven, lifted up, verse 32. What I did is as I was going through this chapter, any references to the gospel or his death or his sacrifice, I just put a cross. I just put a cross. And there, it's all over this chapter. Verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You ever heard this verse used for the power of praise and worship? Let's just praise and worship God. Let's lift up the name of Jesus and he'll draw people to himself. Well, I believe in that in terms of theologically, but don't use this verse to support that. That's not what this verse is saying. Because he explains lifting him up means putting him on the cross. So if you're going to use this verse to say, let's just lift up Jesus, we don't want to put him back on the cross. What he's saying here is as the Son of Man is lifted up, as he is crucified, as he dies, as he sheds his blood, for the sin of all people. That will draw people to the Father because it's through Jesus that we're saved and forgiven and redeemed. Reference after reference after reference in this chapter to the true gospel. Why would we have to explain the gospel today? Wouldn't you think that people would get it today? And yet there's such confusion about the true gospel. There's cults that preach a different Jesus. 
Here's the gospel of Jesus, plain and simple. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God saw a world in sin and separation from him. The only means to remove that barrier is the blood sacrifice of his son. So he became a man in Jesus. He came to earth through the virgin birth. He lived, he loved, he healed. He casted out demons, he raised Lazarus. He died on the cross, shed his blood as the sacrificial atonement, and then rose on the third day victoriously to win the victory over sin, Satan, and death. And if we repent of our sins and receive the free gift of forgiveness in Jesus, we can be saved, forgiven, born again, reconciled to God. Jesus' mission was to die for the sin of mankind, to suffer for us, to shed his blood for us. That's the true gospel. Amen? So how do you respond? Have you received that? Are you a follower of Jesus? Or, and this is the next section now, the true gospel rejected. You look at this good news, you look at what God has accomplished for us in Jesus, and you say, how could anyone reject that? And yet, they did then, and people do today. We're going to see six manifestations of rejecting the gospel. Number one is self-interest. Chapter 11, verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. These religious leaders who had the Old Testament should have most clearly seen Jesus and that he was the fulfillment of things like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, yet they rejected right in the face of the resurrection of Lazarus. Why? Because they were interested in their place, their reputation, their influence, their power. Self-interest will always get in the way of the gospel. When I'm more concerned about David than Jesus, I will probably reject the gospel. When I'm concerned about my own kingdom or my own whatever, self-interest clearly was a cause for some in that day rejecting the gospel and some today rejecting the gospel. Number two materialism you say where do you get materialism in this well in chapter 12 verse 6 again it's the mary anointing jesus with this expensive perfume and of all people judas we should have used that money to feed the poor you know kind of he's going to be this self-righteous concerned about the poor and then i love the commentary here he wasn't really concerned about the poor he was just saying that to appear to be one thing he was actually the guy who would steal money from the little treasury we had So like many today, materialism can be a means by which one rejects the gospel. Being concerned about possessions, money, temporal things. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 19, 23, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get to heaven. Sobering verses. Luke 9 and 25, what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Luke 12 and 15, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Number three, pride. Look carefully at verse 25 of chapter 12. Whoever loves his life loses it. 
loving one's life is the person who lives independent from God, puts self before God. They make their decisions based upon self versus God. They spend their time and money and commitment. It's for self, not for Jesus. That would be pride. Number four, walking in darkness. Chapter 12, verse 35. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. So one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now what this means, I believe, is plain and simply living in sin, rejecting the truth about Jesus and what is pleasing to God and what is displeasing to God. You're rejecting that. You're walking in darkness. Jesus uses the word darkness to speak of sin and the ways of the world and Satan's kingdom. He uses darkness throughout this gospel and others to refer to things like sexual immorality, sexual perversion, gossip, stealing, lying, coveting, materialism, racism, domestic violence, hatred in one's heart. One thing sin does is it clouds you to the light and to the truth. It puts a fog over the glass where you can't see clearly. So when one walks in darkness, they're living in sin, and they're not seeing the truth of God, the truth of sin, the truth about themselves, the truth about what's eternal and temporal. That can also be a way in which it keeps people from the gospel. In other words, they love their sin, they love darkness rather than the light. Jesus talked about that in John, 12, in John 1. What that results in, if it continues, is number five, stubbornness. What let's call a hard, calloused heart. Very sobering passages here. Look carefully at chapter 12, verse 37. When Jesus had said these things, he departed, hid himself from them. Look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. You know, have you ever had somebody say, if God will just do a sign for me, if God will just do an obvious miracle, I hear about these big miracles, if God will just do an obvious miracle and appear to me, then I'll serve him with my whole heart. Would you really? Biblically, it would say you probably won't. The Israelites saw a lot of miracles, and what did they do? They lived like a roller coaster. These people saw Lazarus raised from the dead, and what did they do? They rejected. Though, they had, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Beloved, this is called stubbornness. This is called resistance. This is called a hard heart. So look at verse 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore... They could not believe. Say, what? I thought we all have a chance until we die. Don't, don't we all have you know, free will? And, and even, until the, even at the midnight hour, you can, you can receive Christ, right? Well, this passage to me says there, there can come a time in a person's life when they have resisted and resisted and resisted and resisted 
they can develop a hard heart to where it actually comes to a place where they could not believe. This is scary stuff. Now keep reading and you'll really struggle because it says, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes. You say, what's going on there? Sounds like it's God's fault. Well, I think it's a lot like what happened with Pharaoh. There's verses that said Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then there's verses that say God hardened his heart. I believe what it, what it is is this. God gives one over to their continual resistance and stubbornness, and there can come a time in a person's life when they have crossed the line and there's not the ability to repent. Let me illustrate it this way. Stacy, help me out here, bro. Okay? My hand represents your heart and even your will, okay? And it's open before the Lord, and he does something in your life. He, he exposes you to the gospel, but you resist. So it's like a, a fine layer over your heart. And then you hear something in a song or you hear a sermon on the radio and you kind of just dismiss it going about your own way living in darkness walking in sin don't want to submit to the lord jesus christ in your life and then something else happens i mean you're you're driving along you walk out of this building you look at the beautiful sky and the trees and whatever and there's evidence of god but you just dismiss it you don't give it any account and then he, he, you're in church and you're hearing the gospel, but you're on your phone and you're preoccupied or you just tune out. And then you're exposed in another way through a relationship or through somebody comes in your life and begins to share their testimony and share with you or they show care for you and they implore you to turn your life over to God, but you resist and you resist and you resist until finally God is trying to speak and God is trying to move and God is trying to show himself, but you're not able to believe or hear or respond because your heart has become hard, callous. My brother was a gymnast here at Georgia, a full scholarship gymnast in the late 70s. And, you know, you do the parallel bars and the pommel horse and the rings, and his hand would get blistered and calloused and blistered and another blister and a callus over that blister. We literally at one time could take a, a needle and go about a fourth of an inch down into one of those calluses, and he wouldn't even feel it because it had been hardened. Maybe your heart's become hardened. Maybe some of you listening online, your heart has become hardened. Beloved, what God wants our heart to be is open before him so that whenever he shows us something, we respond. We recognize sin in our life. We quickly repent. We're in his word so that he's, so our heart is tender, receptive, open to his continual work in our lives. Amen? That's what he wants. What had happened with these people? What happens with so many today, unfortunately, is due to stubbornness, their heart becomes hard. And they could actually get to the point where they could not believe. What a tragedy. And 
Finally, number six is fear of man. Another reason for rejecting the gospel. The fear of man. Putting what others think of you as more important than what God thinks of you. Verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities did believe in him. Now we're not sure if that was a salvation belief. Hard to say if it was just an intellectual belief. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. You want to be theologically technical here. Remember Romans 10? Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Maybe they only did one of those two. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Again, self-interest, looking at their own kind of kingdom. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. If I follow Jesus, my friends might make fun of me. People may not like me anymore. I may not be popular or liked. I might not get that promotion. What will people think of me if I really follow Jesus? It's those kind of things that sometimes keep people from properly responding to the gospel. Can you relate to any of this? Do any of these hit home for you or know someone where these apply to? Now at the end of chapter 12, we have a very sobering reminder of the consequences for rejecting the gospel. Verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So he offers to bring us out of that darkness. Verse 47, if anyone hears my word, you're hearing his word right now, and does not keep them, I do not judge him, For I did not come to the world to judge the world, but to save the world. But the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Sobering reminder. What judges a person that rejects Jesus is their sin. Their sin brings the judgment. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish. But if you don't believe, you're condemned already, it says. Jesus said, I don't come to judge, I come to save. Your sin has already judged you. But I've come to bring deliverance from that sin. To bring a solution to that problem. To shed my blood so you can be forgiven. Why would you reject that? But if you do, the Bible says there will be judgment. Eternal separation from God. Now, let's move to the positive side. How shall the gospel be responded to? Let's look now at the true gospel received. What do we learn from this chapter about receiving the true gospel? Responding in the way that would honor God. 
First of all, we see this, sacrifice. Joyful surrender, joyful sacrifice, joyful extravagant worship. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Mary brings this expensive perfume worth a year's wages, anoints Jesus, worships Jesus. And it was a sacrifice to do that. A year's wage just spilled out and used right then. It's all expended. But to her, it wasn't. Because the value of her relationship with Jesus, her extravagance in worship, her willingness to sacrifice was because she loved Jesus so much. And when you understand the true gospel and you understand what Jesus has done for you, and you understand the power of the blood atonement, and you understand the power of the resurrection, you're willing to sacrifice. Because what you sacrifice for is greater than what you sacrifice. You give up a year's wages, but it's to worship Jesus. Your intimacy with Jesus is more important. And so this is the gospel properly responded to. What a picture of a true follower of Jesus. I love that old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. What's the rest of it? The things of this world will grow what? Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. These things, money, material possessions, whatever it is, that I might sacrifice to have greater intimacy and closeness with Jesus, it grows strangely dim. And and growth means that sanctification is a process. It, It is a process. But as you grow more in love with Jesus, giving up and sacrificing actually becomes, and I said it in the first, I'll say it again, it becomes easier. I didn't say easy. It becomes easier. How many of you have experienced that in your life? The more you grow in love with Jesus, the more you experience intimacy with Jesus, the more you're filled with the Holy Spirit and his power, it still can be difficult sometimes to die to the old man and to to sacrifice things, but it's easier because you've tasted, you've tasted this good fruit. And when you've tasted this good fruit, even though it involves sacrificing over here, you know that when you sacrifice here, you're going to get something better over there. Number two, submission. You surrender. Now we get into probably what is the most meaty verse, the most, like, you really ought to meditate on this a lot, verses 24 and 25. Again, it's important to see these together. The grain of wheat about Jesus also is referencing how we have to die. Look carefully with me at 24 and 25. Truly I say to you, unless the grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Then he points to us. Whoever loves his life loses it. Okay, loving your life will be keeping the grain of wheat for yourself, not allowing it to go into the ground, all right? Whoever, look at this, hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's talking about submission. 
talking about surrender. It's talking about a death to self. That just as Jesus, like the grain of wheat, had to die to produce fruit, so do we. We die initially at justification. We surrender our will to God. We surrender our sin to God. We receive Jesus as Savior, and that is a, that is a dying to self for justification. To be declared righteous in the sight of God by a work of the Spirit through Jesus' death and resurrection. But as we grow in sanctification, we also, it's a die daily. It's a continual submission. It's a die every day to things in my life that may be displeasing to God. But it's a joyful surrender the more you understand the gospel and the more you get to know Jesus. And so I die every day to, oh, I could sleep in. My flesh would want to sleep in. I'd rather sleep an hour longer. No, I'm going to sacrifice that sleep, get up a little earlier, spend time with Jesus so that I can grow in intimacy with him. You see how this works? If that grain of wheat called time will go into the earth and die, it will produce a plant that's so much more beautiful than, than what I gave up to get it. I say something to my spouse, or I say something to my children, or I, or I do something that is displeasing to God, and I'm convicted. I can, I can get prideful and defensive and kind of demand my own way, or I can die. <laughs> die to the flesh. Die to selfishness and pride. And admit I did wrong. And ask for forgiveness. And ask for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit to love that person the way Jesus did. That's a form of dying so that I'm more sanctified. See how this works? I could do a lot of things with my money. I could buy a bigger boat. I could buy a bigger house. I could buy a nicer car. I could do all kinds of things with my money. And I'm not saying any of that's wrong if you have a clear conscience before God. But it might be that God says, I want you to die to using your money in a temporal way to buy things that are just going to burn one day. Instead, I want you to sacrifice. I want you to die to using that money the way you want to use it. And how about using it for my kingdom? Let's start with the tithe. But even beyond that, maybe selling that vehicle that's in your barn that's collecting dust and could go to the kingdom to reach more people in Indonesia. You see how this works? And so you look at that verse and you go, wait, hating your life? Hate what? That seems too strong. Hate his life in this world. That's the key, in this world. What I think this means is in comparison to your love for Jesus. And because you value the kingdom and what's eternal so much that you actually grow, in comparison to that, it's almost as if you hate the things of this world. Not in the way that would be just repulsive and like you hate people or you're, you're not really a joy to be around. That's not what it's talking about. But you, in comparison to your love for God, in comparison to your value for what's eternal, you actually say, you know what? Anything that offends God, I actually hate that. I don't want, and hate in the sense that I don't want anything to do with that. God, if you say that this is immoral, then, I, then help me to view it in a way that's just distasteful. Because I want to love the things you love. And I want to hate the things you hate. And then it's, it's like, again, you're growing. This is a process. You're growing in sanctification. This is, this is such a great chapter on what it means to be a true disciple. 
discipleship. This is why I'm so excited about our discipleship process here that we're starting in, in late August on Wednesday nights, and then we'll offer some on Sunday morning. We want to be a church that helps be, make disciples in this discipleship process that we're developing, and we've already done module one, and we're ready to release it. It's helping people grow from a child to a young man to a father. It's, it's realizing that sanctification's a process. And as we grow in our love for Jesus... We are more willing to die to self, grain of wheat, die to things that offend God, die to things that are not of value to him, even to the point where, again, in comparison to the love for him, it would be as if we hate anything that offends God or violates his family. Amen? That's discipleship. That's properly responding to the gospel. In a book that I greatly commend to you, it'll challenge you. This is not for the weary. This is not for the, those who just want milk. This is meaty stuff. Watchman Nee, The Normal Christian Life. Look at this quote. Not until the lordship of Christ in our hearts is, settled, is a settled thing can the Spirit really operate effectively in us. If we do not give him absolute authority there, he can be present, but he cannot be powerful. What we're talking about here is the lordship of Jesus. Jesus being Lord of our lives. Submission. Surrender. Hating our life in this world. Number three. Seek. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Follow means you're seeking. Follow means you're pursuing. Follow means you're going after. Follow means he leads, you follow. This is why I've always felt that the best definition of a true Christian is a follower of Jesus. Not just somebody who's prayed a little prayer and asked Jesus in their heart. Too often we say, are you saved? Have you prayed a prayer? Have you ever received Jesus? And, and again, I know you've got this verses to support that. I believe a better question to ask people, are you a follower of Jesus? For one, because that's the phrase Jesus used. Whenever he called his disciples, he didn't say, pray a little prayer, ask me in your heart. He said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and what? Follow me. And what I love about this word is to follow someone means you have a starting point. Well, that's when you get saved. <laughs> that's when you get justified. But it doesn't end there. You're not always going, well, I got saved when I was 12 years old. Yeah, well, how about today? <laughs> you know, if you're not living it today, then I kind of doubt you got saved when you're 12. You see, that's what I like about follow is it puts it in the now, today. That's what Jesus always did. It begins at a process when you get justified. But following is sanctification. Following is a relationship. And so you're seeking. Are you a follower of Jesus? If not, you can begin today following him. You can begin today by receiving him. Number four, serve. Part of following is you serve. Verse 26, you don't serve to get saved. 
But because you're saved, because you're a follower, you serve. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me. So, beloved, part of being a disciple is you serve. You serve in your family. You serve in the community. You serve in your church. Every true follower of Jesus should have some place in which they serve in the church. It's, it's part of being a follower of Jesus. Again, you don't serve to get saved. You don't serve so God will love you more. You serve because you're his disciple. And we'll look at that next week in John 13. It's all about servanthood. And then look at the end of verse 26. If anyone serves me, this is awesome, you guys. The Father will honor him. How does the Father honor us? I don't know. This could be a reference to eternal rewards. I don't know. It might be that he honors you with joy and fulfillment. I don't know what this means, but how cool that the Father will honor us if we serve him. What a great God we have. <laughs> he, he will honor you. You know, the most joyful people I know are those who love Jesus and serve Jesus. They don't have their eyes on themselves. They are about helping others. Finally, number five, they see because they're walking in the light. Verse 35, another response, proper response to the gospel is you walk in the light. You see clearly. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Verse 35, what does that mean? Watch this. What does it mean to walk in the light? Well, again, as part of the sanctification process, you want to walk in the light. You want the light of God upon you in terms of understanding who he is. You want to understand him for who he is. You, want, you, you have the light revealing what is right and what is wrong. You have the light revealing what is sin. You have the light exposing darkness. You, you, you determine what is right and wrong, not by what the world says, not by what the Supreme Court says. You determine it based on what God's Word says. You're living in the light. And when you fall out of the light and you stray, the light convicts you, and you want to bring it back into the light to be cleansed and purified. Light reveals truth. Light exposes darkness. Light cleanses from unrighteousness. Light brings revelation about who God is, who you are, how you're to live. A true follower of Jesus, disciple of Jesus, will want to walk in the light. And the Bible says the truth will set you free. Look at these characteristics of how we are to respond to the gospel. Sacrifice, extravagant worship, because there's something of greater value that we're after. We submit, we surrender, because we want to please the one who gave his life for us. We seek him, we follow him, we pursue him, we serve him, and we want to walk in the light so how are you doing today do you understand the true gospel have you seen it clearly today 
Do you understand what the true gospel is that Jesus Christ gave his life for your sin? And if so, how are you responding? Are you rejecting or are you receiving? All right, let's take a few questions. If you have a question, raise your hand. We'll bring a microphone to you. Question related to what we have seen in this chapter today. Hold it really close. Sorry, I can't hear you. I just wanted to know who you were talking about when you said Mary gave Jesus her food. Hold on, hold on. Let me come down so I can hear you better. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Glad uh, you're here. Thank you. I wanted to know who you were talking about when you said Mary gave him per Jesus perfume. Yes. Who, who, like Mary the mother or Mary? No, not the Mary the mother of Jesus. Mary, the sister of Martha that had come out of prostitution. Which helps you understand more fully her extravagant worship because the Bible says he who's forgiven much does what? Loves much. Got one right here. So I have a question about um, how when Jesus Christ, like when he actually died, um, I wanted to know if this was actually true but I want to know if he was actually um, not only a blood sacrifice, but a burnt offering. Like when he was actually dead, like was his presence, like his soul in, in hell while his body stayed in the sepulcher? Lots of debates about that. Uh, theologians have not agreed on whether he literally went to hell or not. If you look at the old Apostles' Creed, there's a version of the Apostles' Creed which says he descended into hell. Uh, if you read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, he believes that that is not defended with Scripture. Um, so Wayne Grudem would say that he did, doesn't believe he literally descended into hell. Um, so we're not sure. Bottom line is we don't know exactly what happened during those three days. Others would say, yes, he did, because in taking our sin and bearing the wrath of God, he literally may have gone to hell, and that there's a verse in Peter about he preached to the spirits in prison. That may have been when he was in hell, and he preached to the demons in hell that they were defeated, and that sin has been paid for. So the bottom line is we're not sure. He may have, he may not have. But what we do know is that he fully paid for our sins. He fully bore the punishment of God for our sins so that we could be fully forgiven. Amen. Great question. Love it. Yes. Okay, over here and then there. Hey, Pastor. Um, can you talk a little bit more about sacrifice? Um, or I guess the theme or motif of sacrifice in Scripture. Um, I, I bring that up to say because I know in the Old Testament, I think of two passages. One where David is on the Temple Mount, and he says, I'm not going to sacrifice to the Lord that which cost me nothing. Yes. And then there's also in Hosea 6.6, 6, uh, some translations say, um, I don't want, God is speaking to the Israelites, you know, and he says, I don't want your sacrifices. Yes. Like, I want your heart. I want you That's to right. know me. So can you maybe reconcile oh, the two? Oh, great question. He doesn't want a sacrifice in the sense that we would just give up something thinking that that somehow earns our way to him. That's what he was disgusted with. You guys are sacrificing all these animals thinking that, oh, you can just sacrifice that and that's going to somehow buy my favor, but your hearts are far from me, you know? You honor me with your lips, your heart's far from me. That's what he's referring to in Hosea. The one with David was David out of love for God, 
wanted to make sure he paid for that sacrifice personally so that he had an investment in it. So it's a great, that's a, I love you bringing both of those up because sacrifice, if done from an impure motive, thinking we can somehow buy our way to God, oh, I'm going to give a bunch of money to the church. Oh, I'm going to give all this time to, to, to serving in the community. That'll somehow earn my way to God? No, he's after your heart. He wants your heart yielded to him, surrendered to him. Then from the relationship, which is by faith in Christ alone as a free gift, from that comes our sacrifice to live in a way that pleases the one who gave his life for us. So it's important that the sacrifice is not to get one to justification, but after justification, as a part of sanctification, you sacrifice in order to bring about greater sanctification, greater depth in your relationship with God, and, and you're investing more in the kingdom. You would sacrifice in order that others might come into the kingdom. Follow up? Okay. Well, to me, that's just a semantics. I, w I wouldn't say don't do it unless it's what you would call sacrificial. Um, I mean, it always costs us something. So, yeah, it's a sacrifice. You know, even though you may not feel it so much, like, you know, you, you just have extra money and you just give that. It's not really, you're not feeling the pain of that, but you're still giving it as an offering unto the Lord. That's great. So I don't know that I would get nitpicky about whether it's a sacrifice only because I maybe don't feel it as much, and I don't know if that's what you're saying. But I would say we, we, we would give everything in obedience to God. We would surrender everything to Jesus, and there will be times when it will be more costly than others. But as we're growing in our relationship with him, and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, because none of this is possible without that, we are enabled to do that. Back here. Um, I was wondering, like, where we find, in terms of, like, the gospel received, where do we find the balance between doing things, like, out of obedience, but also, like, making sure that our eyes are fixed on Christ and not doing things, like, just, like, for the sake of doing good works? Like, how do we find the balance of just, like, making sure that, I mean, not, like, waiting for God to convict us to, like, go out when we know his heart is, like, to serve the poor, but also making sure we're not just, like, serving the poor and forgetting to bring Jesus into that for some reason I'm having a real hard time hearing so I'm gonna have to ask you to repeat it can you do it without the mic just for I think I'll actually hear better and then I'll repeat it the gospel what the God okay okay Okay. Can you give me an example, maybe, of something you're thinking of in that? Okay. Gotcha. It's a tough one. 
So where's the balance between obedience and being compelled by the Spirit? Well, I think as we, as we grow in, in our understanding of God's heart through his word, we're growing in understanding what he's called us to do. And you mentioned like helping the poor. And so there's certain things that we can already know we're to do. I think a good example would be evangelism. We know we're called to share the gospel. And so we should be open and obedient on a regular basis to share the gospel. Then there's also the being compelled by the Spirit. There's the prompting of the Spirit. You're at the grocery store, and the Holy Spirit compels you to maybe strike up a conversation with somebody. And so I don't think it's an either-or. And I don't, the balance, I'm not sure, other than the Holy Spirit will show you. Because as we're growing in our understanding of what's on his heart and what he's commanded us to do, we are to be doing it. And within that, there are going to be times when we are compelled through the promptings of the Holy Spirit in a way that may be accelerated in that area. I don't know if that helps. That's my best shot. One more. Sorry. Um, so in this story in John where Mary um, broke her uh, expensive bottle of perfume, um, can you clarify um, in Matthew 26 where the alabaster box, is it the same story or is it two different verts? Two different ones, two different women. Somebody help me out there, because I'd have to look at that. It's hard to answer right now. Is the Matthew 26 one the same one? Jimmy? Somebody help me. I don't know. You're saying it is? Okay. One of the things you can do on those is if you take a parallel Bible, or you do one of these, where it's the synoptic gospels, and it will give you the, the stories, because right now I'm not remembering whether that's the exact one. Um, but I'll look it up and get back to you, Norita. I will. Matthew 26. Okay. Isn't it great to hear a pastor say he doesn't know? Because I don't know everything. So this is good. We, I can all study this together. All right, one more in the back. In the back. Yeah. For some reason, I hear better if it's without the mic, but I know it doesn't pick up good for the. I'll repeat it. I would, okay. I would say he's always knocking. You may not hear it anymore because your heart's become hard. And, and, and this doesn't apply to you, brother, okay? The fact that you would even ask that, and I know, I know you well enough, this doesn't apply to you, okay? So no fear in this. What I was referring, I'm so glad you brought that up because others might have mistaken that as well. What this is referring to is the per person who has rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected the gospel. There have been repeated attempts. They have seen God work. They have heard the word. God has brought people and situations into their life. And they have, out of stubbornness and pride and self-will, have rejected and refused the gospel. And there can come a time, and I, if you're going to use the knock on the door, he's still knocking perhaps, but 
they're, they're not hearing it anymore because they have gone so far from that door. They're in, they're in another part of that house so far from the front door that they're not hearing or responding to anything God would do. And if you're here today and you have concern about whether that's you, it's probably not you or you wouldn't be concerned, okay? But you need to give attention to whatever God's saying to you. And if there's been some resistance in your life and you've had exposure after exposure and you've been in church service after church service and you've had person after person in your life and you know today that your life is not in the will of God and you're not walking with the Lord and you're not seeking God, then this is God's way of saying, you need to repent now. You need to turn now. Because if you continue to resist, you can get to the place where your heart is so hard that you're not hearing. And it may, in a sense, be kind of like your last chance. I don't say that to scare you. I just say that's what I see not only in this passage, but in others as well. So worship team, come on up and let's pray. Wait, Jimmy, you have something? Did you find the answer? It is. There was, well, there was a question online. Uh, if Jesus knew Judas was taken to money bags, why wouldn't he rebuke him? It also seems as if he just let him steal in secret, which could grow his thieving heart uh, with the end result of Judas betraying Jesus. Yeah, I've always wondered that too. I don't know the answer to that. Why did you, why did, if, if it was known that he was stealing from the money, why didn't Jesus confront him about it? Why did he kind of just let it go on? Hey, for all we know, he, Jesus did confront him. I mean, we don't have the full story. So he may have confronted him and he just didn't repent. And we're getting the full disclosure now. Uh, Andy Hines had an interesting comment earlier. He said, it's good that the Sons of Thunder didn't find out about it or they probably would have eliminated him earlier. Uh, they would have been a little, a little less graceful to him. We don't know how much he stole. We, you know, so it's, there's a lot of unknowns there. Uh, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to stop it just because of time. Yeah. So there's the prophecy about Jesus being betrayed for thirty pieces of silver. You can't stop a prophecy. So, all right, these are good, you guys. So let's go back and let's look one more time before we wrap it up. How will you respond today? How will you respond to this wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ? Father, we love you. We surrender to you. Have your will and way in our lives. And I would pray right now, God, for just your grace. Help us with these questions. I don't feel like I did a good job today of answering them at all, but I pray that you would give the answers because you're the ultimate one who reveals truth. And I pray that uh, we will seek you, seek you to grow in you and love you. And I pray, God, for anybody here or listening online that they know their life is not pleasing to you. I'm not going to give any kind of public response today. I don't feel led to do that, but I pray that in their heart, they will respond in repentance and returning to you and thank you that you're so gracious to forgive like the prodigal when he came back. So Father, I just pray your spirit, your power to move in the hearts of every person who's heard this message that their response would be that which you would desire. 
and that from this moment forward, we would follow you, we would love you, we would seek you, we would obey you, so that when we, come, when we stand before you on that great day of judgment, we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. What could be greater than to hear those words? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing an amazing final song. Don't sing it if you don't mean it. It's powerful words. Some of you may want to come to the front and just kneel and surrender to the Lord. Our prayer team could be available along the sides if you have a need or want somebody to just pray for you. Come up to one of those. They would love to pray for you. But again, this song, folks, oh, it's awesome. I mean, it really nails it, doesn't it, Christy? It nails it. This song really does communicate what the way we should respond to what we've heard today. So sing it with your heart and surrender to the Lord. Red. 